We might get some listeners. <laughs> I meant to bring Raymond in as a surprise, and now as we're getting started, he is already here. Hey, Raymond. Howdy. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's always great to see you, even if it's just on the same screen we work on all day long. Yeah. Yeah, it used to be nice to gather on screens, and now it feels like it's slowly becoming um, a chore. But it's all we have these days. Yeah, we look kind of like a chimera with this setup. It's kind of fun. <laughs> Well, uh, we do have Dr. Robertson with us this week, and we have some interesting topics to discuss with him. A few things to get us started. Let's see, how you been, Greg? Oh, I didn't know we were getting started with me. I, yeah. I, I, you know, all good. Who can complain? I'm, I'm a prisoner of my house because of COVID. Our politics are falling apart. The President of the United States has accused his chief military advisors of giving him uh, slanted advice in order to uh, feed the military industrial complex money. Uh, and, and yet he calls other people left wing radicals. Uh, we, we still have violence in our streets, although not as much as the president says. And we, we have a, a presidential election whose rhetoric is already getting really low. And we're, we still have 55 days before the election. So other, you know, other than those things, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I took a, a, a brief look at some of the uh, clips from the briefing from the White House on Monday. And um, every time I, I tune back in to actually hear what the president has to say, it, it's like it becomes more and more outrageous over time. Um, <laughs> I'll take off my mask so you can hear me better. There we go. It's so pleasant of you. I got to take off my mask so you can hear me <laughs> Yeah. No, I, I, well, I'm glad a number of people in my email circles are speculating on whether the Joint Chiefs should resign. Now, I, I don't think they will. Our military officers don't resign, but I can imagine that they were gobsmacked when the president said what he said about them. You know, the, I don't know if our listeners, the context of this, it's, it's amazing that this wasn't a screaming headline all around the country. But in the context of the, the story that broke last week from Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic that the president said derogatory things about American war dead, uh, he was asked on Monday uh, about, you know, whether he had the support of the military or he supported the military. I forget the question. He basically said, well, the troops love me. I'm not sure the commanders love me, but all they want to do is keep fighting endless wars and spend more money so arms manufacturers can make more money. Wasn't the, uh, the reported comment, too, that anyone that dies in war is a sucker and a loser? I mean, wasn't that sort of the takeaway as well? Well, that was, that was the Jeffrey Goldberg story in The Atlantic. But, but what I found more shocking, frankly, was what he said about his military advisors. And that was, I mean, it's kind of gone under the radar as just part of this story about Trump and the military, but I don't think an American president has ever said anything like that about the, about the senior officers of the American military. Nope. Nope. It was, it, it was flabbergasting. Well, he keeps playing to the lowest common denominator as often as possible. Yeah, but what is this? I mean, Raymond, you've got something to say on this. Go ahead. 
<laughs> well, no, it's just it's a pattern of disrespect for everything that America stands for. And America's military personnel are some of our most honorable and respected people in the world. And to disparage them is just a slap in the face to every American. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the military, especially the military leadership, should be open to, to criticism from civilians and everybody else. And look, we, we, we haven't covered ourselves in glory in some of our recent military ventures, right? Although I would argue that, that you know, in many cases, it was political decisions to, to start unwinnable wars. But let's face it, the military didn't cover itself with glory in Iraq. Uh, but to impugn the integrity of your leading officers of your Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is exactly what the president did, is remarkable, particularly given the, the fact that he's trying to run as I'm the guy who rebuilt the military and I'm a real American and Joe Biden's a leftist crazy. I, I don't know what this guy thinks when he gets in front of a microphone. People aren't paying a lot of attention to it perhaps because it is just one more crazy thing that the president says. The yeah. president every day reveals two or three crazy things that have never been said before. And we've, this has been going on for four years, right? So, I mean, it, it's amazing that he made it this long without saying something that crazy about the military leadership. He said something about everybody else. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's just like this never ending nightmare. <laughs> I hope they don't resign. You hope they don't resign because that would leave a gaping hole in the leadership that would only be filled by the president. And you don't want military officials loyal to the president in the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that, that's not, we need someone who's still going to have a semblance of continuity in America. Part of the dictator's playbook. Exactly. That's what I was, I was talking to your friend actually earlier uh, this week, Greg. Um, and uh, we were a friend of yours and we were set up at SMU. And uh, he was telling me that this is just one more step in the three easy steps to overthrow a democracy. How to overthrow democracy in three easy steps. Discredit the press, discredit the bureaucracy, discredit the military. And yeah. discredit elections. And discredit elections, right? Exactly. So it all falls into place. And he said, this is very much like what Germany experienced in the 20s. Right? A lot of parallels. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm... This uh, is, yeah. This is not gonna cheering be a me yeah, yes, on that, let's uh, talk well, about COVID. I'm not cheering. <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk about COVID instead. And cheer ourselves up. Yeah, right. Something uh, better. Yeah, all kinds of positive things going on. Um, well, yeah, as uh, Greg mentions, uh, Raymond uh, is uh, is our resident economist uh, who continues to come back after repeated uh, conversations with us. So either he's enjoying himself or he's a uh, Glutton for punishment and oh, who's um, more fun than right? YouTube. Nobody's more fun than YouTube. <laughs> you gotta know that. We're not we're not boring anyways, I don't think. Um, and I do I'm miss us, our, I'm the word. Yeah. I do miss our ability to gather at uh, downtown uncorked and have some wine beforehand and uh, talk a little bit. I do I do very much miss that. But it's good to see you guys here. And uh, maybe we should uh, plot along. Um, got our hot takes. Oh, I, I missed it, but uh, I'm working on our new subtitles here, as you can see. Ah, Dr. Raymond Robertson is with us this week. Uh, thanks again for being with us, Raymond. 
and um, we we have done our uh, hot takes on the madness that is the the Mad King right now, or attempt at being a Mad King, I suppose, and our current president. One other thing I wanted to highlight um, because it's been a talking point and a kind of a cultural moment both uh, in the U.S. and at our university was the um, executive memorandum that went out canceling all conversations around essentially diversity inclusion as un-American propaganda, um, which, you know, if you're just looking for evidence to be uh, put in the crowd with white supremacists and white nationalists, canceling all conversation around diversity and inclusion seems like a good way to tip your hat to that crowd. And um, so there was another, on top of the, the madness coming out of the Atlantic report, yet another example of, of uh, Donald Trump just being an unfit leader. I mean, I know there's a lot of ways to, to spin it, but just being kind of an inept leader, which is a nice transition to Raymond's paper, um, where uh, as I was reading through, I caught that there are three things from uh, Dr. Fukuyama as to uh, what creates a stable response, policy responses when needed. And one of them is a strong leader, um, uh, which I think we're missing these days. So with that in mind, uh, Raymond is here to talk about uh, the economic consequences of COVID-19. And mm -hmm. I've been excited to get an update from you um, on issues around labor, issues around demand and GDP. Greg and I have been uh, doing our best to speculate as non-economists. Um, but uh, I was happy that you sent me your draft paper and uh, spent some time reading it today. And I'm really excited to talk about it uh, with our audience today. Yeah, that's really great. Thank you very much for having me. I do want to tip my hat a little bit to our colleague, Andrew Natsios, who invited me to write this uh, chapter for a book that he's working on, on COVID. And uh, as one of the, you know, a couple, there's a couple or a few economists at the Bush School, right? One of the things we try to focus on is is bringing uh, data to bear along with economic theory. So what I tried to do in this piece, which I'm, I'm excited to share with the world, uh, once it gets published, obviously, in, in Andrew's uh, book, um, you know, is that this is a review of more than 80 academic studies that have just come out this year. So every paper in the reference list is 2020, and there's <laughs> over 80 papers in the reference list that we went through uh, to really try to synthesize and summarize what do people think is important about uh, the crisis, what are some of the important economic aspects, and then what are some of the policy implications, of course, for uh, some of the lessons that we've learned both in the United States and throughout the rest of the country. So that that's really what, what the overall theme is. And so I think this is a great opportunity to chat with the, you two guys who are obviously uh, some of the most respected uh, experts we have here in College Station. So it's really uh, great to get your feedback on it. All right, well, let's dive right in. I also saw that you cited recent work by my friend Anton Kornick, which I was happy to, uh, to see some recent work uh, of his in there. He and I have been working together on some of the AI and governance issues. And uh, so it was nice to see him referenced as well. Well, throw COVID in so, the world, we'll try and get you in here too. So there's still room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how I'd like to do this, um, in contrast to Greg and I's uh, meandering ramblings that we have been doing with our hot takes this summer is have a little bit more structured conversation because I think it's really important that, that our audience kind of gets the empirical evidence coming on 
how COVID is in, uh, affecting the economy and whether different policies have been effective and whether it's uh, impacting people similarly or not. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that um, I wanted you to highlight maybe for us first from your paper is that this is, is not a typical crisis. And maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. And while we do that, we're going to try something new. Listeners won't be able to see this, but I have a uh, some of the graphics from Dr. Robertson's paper that we can share with those of you that are watching on YouTube. And um, so I'm going to pull in the first graph up here and feel free to reference it when you would, uh, when you would like, Raymond. And if you want me to scroll to one of the other figures, we can try to get it set up so that uh, it's clear for the audience as well. But tell us why in your paper you talk about this not being a typical crisis. Sure. So there's there's two reasons why we would say this is definitely not a typical crisis. One, they're both encapsulated in graphs, and uh, my guess is that the two of you have already discussed uh, the first one at great length, which is the United States really stands out. Okay. So if we look at countries' experience with COVID around the world, uh, you look at other countries that we would either compare ourselves with or we wouldn't. Uh, the United States really stands out. So what this first figure here is for the people who can see it is just a graph of new COVID cases, new cases in uh, adjusted for the size of the population. And there's a couple of really interesting things. First of all, uh, the United States is the solid line, and I'm gonna go through the other uh, areas that are depicted on the graph. China basically is a flat line across the bottom, except for a little tiny, tiny, the tiniest of bumps kind of in the middle of February. China was able to lock this down way faster than anybody else has been able to lock it down. And, you know, there's been a number of editorials which have come out lately about how they did that. Americans, especially freedom-loving Americans, would be pretty much aghast at the way they locked it down. There are stories of, you know, women in particular who are identified as, uh, you know, having symptoms or even just testing positive, being stripped down and isolated and quarantined and sprayed with disinfectant twice a week. I mean, there are some really kind of draconian stories coming out. Um, so if you look more at the free societies, which we'd like to compare ourselves to, going into sort of the middle of March, the United States, Germany, uh, China, Germany and Sweden all kind of took off more or less at the same time. And one of the things we noticed is that Germany and the United States diverged very, very soon, right around the 1st of April, where we were on the same slope going up, we were the same, but then Germany really starts to take a dive because they're able to have very effective social distancing, uh, masks and quarantine and tracing. So these are four of the things that are really critical uh, in their policy for getting it under control. And, you know, one of our, two of our colleagues, you know, Matthias Portner and uh, Vivian, um, they were in Germany and they said, you know, basically things are back to normal. You can go out to restaurants and whatever, and things are more or less back to normal. So the other comparison that people have made has been, and this was more last week, so I know there's kind of a day-to-day -day change in the COVID, uh, but last week people were really talking about following the Swedish example. And you'll see that the United States and Sweden were following very similar paths until about the beginning of July when we diverged. And... Um, and so in the paper, I talk about what were some of the things that led to the Swedish success and what are some of the things that are happening in the United States. But in any case, whether or not you look at the Chinese example, the German example, the Swedish example, or even other places, just the world in general, the United States is far and away uh, standing out as being completely uh, a failure in terms of being able to control this crisis. What am well, I, I mean, American yeah. exceptionalism. American exceptionalism. We're number one. Yeah, we're number one. 
Yeah. So it's really one of my, I was talking to another friend of mine earlier this week who said, how did we ever win World War II? <laughs> how did we ever get it together? You know, and it's, it's it pretty was, shocking. But it was it, a close run thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, it was much, uh, much tighter. So that that's really the first thing and why this is not typical, right? Usually we think of Americas as being leaders and, and we're leaders, uh, but not in the way that we would really hope. So I don't think most of maybe your listeners or most of Americans really understand that uh, this is a crisis that can be under control. It can be controlled. We can eliminate this. Uh, it's just going to take political will. It takes political will. It takes policies, and it, it takes some discipline um, to 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 do that. And we apparently don't have that, or we've chosen not to have it. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you know, just referred to uh, Professor Fukuyama's uh, article in Foreign Affairs, right? And he says there's three critical things that you need really to make this work, and you need you know experts that know what they're doing. And clearly, I mean, I cite 80 different papers, and and we know what to do. And then you need sort of a bureaucracy that's able to carry out uh, the policies, which we have. I mean, I really the public servants that we've trained and that we know. Right or the best in the world. We know that these are people who are highly dedicated uh, to public service. They're very qualified, uh, so they're they're really good. But the third critical thing is you need leadership. You need a leader who's going to be decisive and direct their bureaucracy based on what the experts say, and that's what we don't have. We don't have that right now. So one of the things that you mentioned in the in the paper as well that I thought was really interesting was how. You know, there's this conversation around shutting things down, ruin the economy. This was a talking yeah. point early on. Greg and I were discussing this with folks back in March and April. And the big concern was that if we shut things down, there's going to be these uh, disastrous consequences. And uh, it, it, it's not worth the, the economic consequences to stop the spread of the virus. Because if we shut down the economy, that's going to kill a lot of people. Um, more so than the virus. So this was one of the talking points early on in April and May and throughout the summer. But you kind of do a little bit maybe to dispel this trade-off. So tell us a little bit about what you've actually, what the what the literature actually says the policy impacts have been versus just the virus impacts itself. Sure. You know, I went into this, uh, you know, total full disclosure here. I went into this thinking that that was the case, you know, thinking that it was these policies that shut down, you know, restaurants and so on that really led to the economic contraction. And when I was going through this long, long list of studies uh, that were trying to answer that question, because everyone wants to answer that question, mm -hmm. it turns out that there's a lot of evidence that suggests that that is not actually uh, the main factor. It turns out that there's people who are tracing cell phone locations, so watching people's actual movements, uh, and then timing those with um, different policies across states and different policies uh, across time. And they also did other, there's lots of other things, just comparing differences across states with different policies. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of different methodologies. Mm -hmm. The evidence really does seem to suggest two main things. And one of these is kind of my interpretation and the other is really coming more from this literature. Uh, but but both of them were basically saying that uh, people reacted to the presence of the virus itself and they stopped going out. Once they knew that the virus was out there, they stopped going out. The orders to stay in place, yeah, for example, like right, <laughs> a great example of this, 
And so were we, right? We were like going out even mm -hmm. before the stay-in-place orders. The stay-in-place orders actually came after people stopped going out. And so to say that, you know, these policies contributed, sure, you know what I mean? There was, they contributed. It's not to say that they had no effect, but the main effect of the economic contraction came from the virus itself, which means that the solution is not getting people to go back to restaurants, the solution is getting rid of the virus. That's what we need to do. That's gotta be our number one and really our only policy priority if you want to restore the economy and if you want um, to solve the crisis. Greg, you have a look like you wanna say something there. <laughs> I haven't left my house in six months. <laughs> yeah, Right. I haven't been to a restaurant or a movie theater. I haven't been on an airplane. And it's not because Greg Abbott said that I should stay home. It's nope. because I don't want to get the damn virus. Right. Because you're smart and you know that there's a risk and you why run the risk. And that's that's you were like many other Americans who behaved in the same way. And exactly. I'm old, so it could kill me. Yeah, I dispute yeah. that a little bit. I mean, I, I, I got a little you're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> don't give him a break. Greg's the oldest one around. <laughs> on the screen i'll give him that i'll, I'll give him that right. so you 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 highlight that uh, there there are things other than the policies that may be contributed to this and in the, the paper you uh, pulling from the literature as you mentioned highlight three in particular that i've thrown up on the screen for those of us uh, for those following along which is uh, less demand which you mentioned already and that's the idea that we stayed home. And if you're staying home, you're not spending money on airplane tickets. You're not spending right. money in restaurants. And so the demand really drops. But there were a couple of other things that, um, that the virus impacted as well that the literature seems to suggest is what's really driving the economic consequences. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about those. Right. So, yeah, when you review the like the entire literature, they really do focus on these three things. You know, the first one is just people staying home because they're scared. Right. And, and are being prudent or being prudent. Uh, and, and the next one, of course, is this uncertainty. You know, if you study economics or you study business, I mean, you talk to business folks. Uh, the thing that they'll always tell you is more. We will take bad policies over uncertainty anytime. So it's uncertainty, which makes it very difficult to plan. We can plan for a bad policy. We can work our way around it. We can you know, deal with it. But uncertainty is really an inhibitor to business. And you know that the, both the COVID crisis and I think you know, the president's handling of it really increased a lot of uncertainty. We never knew kind of you know, what was going on or who was saying what. I and mean, even to the extent where, you know, where the president said, uh, you know, okay, I'm not going to make a policy. I'm going to leave it to the states. He leaves it to the states and then encourages people to protest against the state governments for doing what they thought was the best thing to do. So there's all kinds of uncertainty about, you know, are we going to keep this policy? Are we not going to keep this policy? Is this the right thing to do? Is this not? So the amount of uncertainty really caused businesses to pull back on investment. And when we talk about unemployment, which we did, we, maybe we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, but a lot of the unemployment, you know, came from people losing their jobs, right? I mean, but it turns out that also a big chunk of the loss of employment was just because firms stopped hiring. So they stopped posting new jobs because they don't know what's going to happen and it doesn't make sense to be hiring. And so there's a normal churn in the labor market, right? There's people getting fired and people getting hired. If you stop the hiring, 
that leads to this normal backup of employment, which really raised the rates quite a bit. So the uncertainty really played a very big role in having, again, clear policies help solve that problem. Yeah, one of the things that we, we, we did kind of skip over was the, the disparate impact to different types of people in different industries and that this hasn't hit everyone equally. So maybe let's just dive in a little bit to that. You provide some nice evidence of the, uh, the way the unemployment rate had spiked among some groups and then recovered among some groups. And it's not a uniform across, across different types of people and across different types of industries, whether your job was remote, whether you were a little bit older, and whether you are an immigrant seem to be three in particular. But, but maybe share a little bit more about that, and then we'll come back to supply chains. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the two things about unemployment that made this really, again, going back to this not a typical crisis idea, was number one was the unemployment rates were extremely high, right? So there was this huge spike. We have the highest unemployment since the Great Depression. By some measures, depending on, you know, you take into account uh, kind of measurement and, and lack of responsiveness and the way the BLS measures unemployment, there are some studies out there saying that, you know, unemployment was much higher, 20, 25%, maybe higher than it was in the Great Depression. So, you know, there's some, uh, that's a big part of what's going on. But the second interesting thing was what you just mentioned, which is, you know, who is affected? And it turned out that, uh, obviously, as you know, right, the people with these face-to-face -face jobs uh, were the ones that really got hit the hardest. And those are the lowest wage workers, right? The, the lowest wage workers really got hit the most because they're the ones who have to take, you know, a lot of these face-to-face -face service jobs. People, let's face it, like people who are professors at a university who have this technology, who live in areas with good internet, who are able to do their job from home suffered a lot less, right? And those happen to be a lot of the higher income folks. It's the lower income folks that really got hit hard. And that's something I think we really need to take into account with policy, right? Is we need to direct sort of the support to the places where it needs the most. But one of the really curious things about this was in all of the other recessions, um, you know, uh, women usually got hit less than men. So in, in previous recessions, and I show this in a really cool graph, men got hit a lot harder. In this one, women really got hit particularly hard. Uh, and that has tremendous implications, I think, you know, for the economy, for growth, for childcare, you know, a whole bunch of other things. Uh, so we saw that, you know, this change in unemployment for women was particularly high, uh, which, you know, it was women, and you already mentioned some of the other ones. Immigrants was another one, right? People who are already in sort of these riskier jobs really got hit hard. Yeah, which is what's going to bring us back eventually to some of the policies and which ones are actually helpful and which ones aren't. Um, we're talking about the PPP, the PPP and the CARES Act and which one does a better job of actually getting the benefits to those that need it. Um, but before we get there, one piece that may not be clear to people, I think people can imagine that, yeah, people were uh, frightened and so they stayed home. I stayed home. I haven't been in a restaurant for dinner and sat inside since March. Um, yeah. And so that would make sense. And more uncertainty, unless you're living under a rock somewhere or part of the of the cult that's in uh, part of the cult, you can see that uncertainty is up as a consequence both of COVID, but also the actions of the presidential administration. Uh, but supply chains and the way in which they work is maybe less uh, obvious to non-economists. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about that, just so people can kind of have a sense of that. 
Yeah, so one of the things that's characterized the global economy since the early 1990s was breaking up all the stages of production and then sending those stages to different countries and different regions. Uh, so that trade increased dramatically, especially from developing countries. So when China was first hit, for example, there was this very significant shutdown. China reacted very strongly and shut everything down. And we get so many final goods from China, but we also get a lot of inputs from China. And not having those meant that other businesses, even if everything else was okay, even if they could still produce, their workers could come to work, nobody had COVID, they couldn't get the inputs that they needed. And so that meant that they had to shut down. And then that meant workers got laid off for those reasons, not necessarily directly because of COVID or face-to-face, it was just they didn't have the parts that they needed and they had to lay off workers. So the disruption of supply chains really is shaping policy in uh, really significant ways that most people, I think you're right, don't appreciate. I mean, I was working with the, um, we have our global supply chains initiative, our global value chains uh, program. We're working with now the Secure America Institute over in engineering, right? And they're really uh, like, a, they're really, motivated and very interested in sort of this call by the Defense Department and from others to reshore. So reshoring and resilience are the new buzzwords. So they, they say we can't be in this position where we can't get our inputs. We need to make sure that we have a contingency plan, that we increase the security of our supply chain. So there's going to be a big push as a result for bringing uh, some production back here to the United States. And what's, you know, we've talked uh, over the past couple of years about the importance of specialization and free trade. And so what is your just initial, and then I want to move to the policies uh, and some of the reasons why some of these policies can apply to, to these global challenges. But what's your just, what's your hot take of the reshoring um, mindset? You know, I, I think it's, it's obviously security is very important and, you know, you want to make sure that you have resilience and you have some, you know, some sort of um, double production built in, right? So that you're not subject to this. But at the same time, whenever we rush into these, we sort of overlook the costs and the two big costs. Have we ever done that, Greg? Have we ever overlooked the cost? <laughs> maybe, maybe once or twice. Maybe once or twice. So I think I feel like I have some responsibility to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know what I mean? There's there's two big things that are important. Number one is that that's going to really drive up prices, right? And so it's for whatever reason, prices are going to go up for cars, for food, for clothes, you know, for clothing, for everything else. So that there's going to be some big price effects that I think we need to take into account. But the second thing is, and this obviously is going to reveal my research interests, but you know. A big chunk of my research is different than what is going on, I think, in the popular literature about these kind of supply chains. They're doing a lot of good for creating jobs for people in developing countries. You look at Bangladesh, you look at Brazil, even China, right? They were in Mexico. They were really able to reduce poverty and reduce inequality because they got integrated into these supply chains. We pull back that's really gonna have an adverse effect on the development in the rest of the world. And they're not gonna buy as many of our products. It's gonna slow down the global economy. And I think rushing in to sort of this reshoring or this isolationist philosophy, however you wanna call it, uh, really would have long-term negative growth impacts. Raymond, it doesn't sound like you're putting America first. 
<laughs> I always put Americans first, Americans first. We can support, we're the best country in the world. We can support us and the rest of the world. I believe in American exceptionalism. We're the city on the hill, Greg, the city on the hill, the shining city on the hill. One of the things that I, one of the things I really liked about your, uh, about your paper is putting it in some of the global context and also talking about it in terms of negative externalities as a, as a justification for coordination across countries. Um, so um, let's talk a little bit about some of the policies and which ones are, are good ideas and bad ideas um, as our tagline uh, for our viewers can see. One of the things, um, one of the things that the, the US has responded in a couple ways. The two programs that are maybe the most popularized are PPP mm -hmm. and uh, CARES Act. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about both of those coming back to kind of the domestic picture. Um, and it, it seemed like in the paper, one maybe is, is quite helpful for addressing these disparate impacts across different individuals. And one maybe is more captured by one particular group. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So can I, you, I need to unpack. You said a lot there. I, I <laughs> unpack a little bit of that. Just because I think that it's important for our audience and for AM and Texas, you know, to, to not thinking that, you know, we're some kind of raging socialist by arguing that there's a role for the government to coordinate here. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm going to go back to neoclassical economic theory that is very precise about the conditions in which government involvement is appropriate, right? So maybe not making shirts or cars or bread, the government needs to stay out of the private marketplace 99% of the time. It's only when there are these significant negative externalities, which means there's costs imposed on others or in you know, society that are not captured by the market that the government is justified for stepping in, right? And it's, it's a small group, so it's a small group. So, you know, we have stop signs, right? Because you can't put a price on a stop sign, so you have to pay a quarter every time you're gonna go through a stoplight or something, right? It's not practical, right? So there are these externalities that justifies some government involvement. And, and having COVID spreads externalities on everyone, right? So if I have COVID and I'm asymptomatic and I go out and I go visit Greg because I like hanging out with Greg and I give Greg COVID, Greg suddenly has a huge cost imposed on him that I'm not paying for and he can't get me to pay for it. So now he's gonna pay for my mistake. Do you know what I'm saying? And so that's a negative externality. So the government is therefore justified in those situations as narrow as they may be to actually take action, right? So that's why there really is a role for the federal government to be being active and proactive and setting up policies. So just government involvement should is justified as well. In the paper, you highlight it really nicely from one of the recent studies about the difference in costs to the individual if they get COVID as opposed to the societal cost. And I think it was something like 80,000 to the individual and over yeah. 200,000 to society was the estimated cost. So here's yeah, a, a nice example. Yeah. 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 286,000. So yeah, it was, it was a lot bigger and that's, that's exactly it. That's the justification, right? If the cost of society is greater than the cost to you, then we should be spending a hundred thousand on, right? If we could spend a hundred thousand, we can compensate you the 80,000 plus 20 and keep the rest of society's costs under control. I mean, so I think, yeah, I think that, that I like, that was one of the uh, really nice studies. Is that the one with your friend? Is that what your friend was doing? 
I think that was the one uh, Anton was doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Of course, I like it. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. <laughs> that, that makes it. a good plug for your friend there. I hope he's yeah. I hope he right. It's a he. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. I hope he's watching. That'd be great. So uh, yeah. I'll, push, I'll push back just slightly before we move on as the non-economist, which is to say that uh, externalities are everywhere. And negative externalities in particular, I think, are all over the place. Uh, but Raymond, I, I do think, makes an important point that this isn't, a, this isn't a call for communism or socialism. This is straight from basic class, a neoclassical economic theory and is, uh, is kind of a standard bearer of modern economics, too. It's not that it went away as a, as a, a way of thinking about this as uh, economics has continued to progress over time. And in fact, maybe it takes externalities even more seriously than yeah. some of the original neoclassical work. Yeah, yeah. So it's really highlighting the importance of that is justification. Yeah, I mean, we're on the same page. We're on the same yeah, page. Yeah. So tell yeah, me about these two policies in particular. Given that there's a lot of ne negative externalities and a, and a global pandemic, we can work under assumption that some people are imposing costs on others that aren't party to the uh, transaction there. There's better and worse policies, as we were noting earlier. Some of these policies did have an impact when we were shutting things down. Mm -hmm. had less of an impact. So how do you, what does the literature say so far about which policies have been helpful and not helpful? So one of the things that was uh, kind of interesting was, you know, the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP was really kind of one of the first ones. And that was really targeted at businesses to try and keep people going and trying to sustain businesses. A lot of that money, it turns out, went to very large corporations, as we know, right? And, uh, you know, you know. Bless their hearts. They're all God's children. You know what I'm saying? But, but it's not clear that that actually was getting at uh, more of the core. So the CARES Act, which actually as, delivered money. As a, as, as a famous American politician once said, corporations are people too. Corporations are, are people too, right? Yeah, right, right, right. That's tongue in cheek. Um, yeah, but at the, the federal, you know, at the federal level, the CARES Act was the other one. And this actually was, you know, this pay, the kind of sending money directly to consumers. And one of the great things about this program was that uh, it really helped those low income people kind of make it, you know, kind of get to the next step. They were the ones that were the hardest hit. Getting that, you know, $600 or $800 or whatever it was, $1,000 made a huge difference. And I know that, you know, even people in my own family who got those checks, it made the difference between kind of making it and not making yeah. it. And that's what really needed to happen, right? We needed to get money directly in the hands of, of individuals. And that that um, really helped a lot. But, you know, as I was saying, the, the core, that's a symptom, right? We need to get at, not to kind of tongue-in-cheek use the metaphor of a disease, right? We need to get at the disease and not the symptoms, which is we need to eliminate COVID and get COVID under control, right? That's that's the, the main thing. And that's why the other countries that have succeeded, you know, whether it was Sweden or Germany or China, uh, they got the virus under control. They got the well, virus. I, I got to interject here. Sweden yeah. got, the, Sweden got the, the virus under control at an enormous human cost. Oh, yeah. Their death rate was enormous. Yeah. They, they basically took seriously the ravings of some of the people around President Trump that, well, just let everybody get sick, protect the, protect the folks in the nursing homes, let everybody else get sick. Eh, you know, some people might die, but, you know, it would be better in the long run. The death rate in Sweden is extremely high. Yeah. So, so if the Swedes crushed the curve, they did it on the, on, on the bodies of, of a number of Swedes who maybe didn't have to die because of this. 
And I'm so glad you made that point, right? Because last week the president was considering, you know, the Swedish option. And if you're, you know, kind of a sociopath who hates people, that's going to seem very attractive, right? I mean, why not? I mean, well, he's got he's got a medical advisor now who's not an epidemiologist or or an expert in infectious diseases, but a radiologist who happens to be conservative politically and has been on Fox News. And he's been spouting this idea. Do what Sweden yeah. did. Yeah. Right. And that's that's. We don't want to do what China did because we're a free country, but we don't want to do what Sweden did because, frankly, I think we, I'd like to think that we value Americans more than that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Regardless of whether, you know, it's it's President Trump or George Floyd, we need to value all Americans and we need to, you know, every life is valuable. We need to protect that. And we can do it without doing the Swedish or the, or the, or the Chinese option, right? The Germans, the Germans, the South Koreans, the Taiwanese, they didn't have strategies that required an extraordinary number of their citizens to die in order to achieve good results. That's exactly. I have a a colleague and friend that's uh, been on the podcast before, uh, Nathan Favero. He's at American University and uh, he he was invited to Aarhus, uh, Denmark for the, for the academic year. He was actually still able to go. He had to self uh, quarantine for two weeks once he arrived, uh, I think in early August. And he, he showed this interesting conversation with me. He, they were able to go into the office and they had a little bit of a spike and they had to not go in for a, a, a while. And now they're back kind of going into the office and interacting with colleagues. And he said one of his Danish colleagues was was chatting with him and, and said, you know, we've uh, uh, asked him kind of talking about COVID and talking about global challenges. And he said to his, his Danish colleague said, you know, when in Denmark, we're really just now starting to wrestle with the impact of what COVID did to us in the past tense. And, uh, and Nathan was kind of kind of culturally shocked by this. He was like, you know, in America, we're still in the midst of trying to navigate it. There's no reflecting back on what the costs have. We're still experiencing these costs yeah. every single day, um, which presents quite a, quite a challenge. So... Me- we, like we've to, got the worst. Go ahead, go ahead. I mean, we've got the worst of all possible worlds. We yeah. haven't crossed the curve, and 180,000 Americans have died. Yeah. 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 It's almost like if people had just listened to experts and had an effective bureaucracy and a strong leader, we could yeah. have uh, stopped some of these things. If only there had been some clue. Craig, some I wish I. It, it, there's no. There's no happiness in saying I told you so. It doesn't no. like it doesn't give me the feeling that I had hoped it would from April till now. It just feels mostly defeating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they I just saw the article this morning and who knows? I like to wait a day before I cite any news because who knows? You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? This article, I'm citing it more for fun than for accuracy. But there was one estimate that said that 19% of the uh, you probably saw this, but 19% of the new daily cases over the last like three weeks came from Sturgis, the motorcycle rally. <laughs> I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, all national cases came from the motorcycle rally. And that was actually one of the papers. One of the papers did that I reviewed, right? Talks about how, you know, they do these surveys and, you know, they find that whether it's partisanship or sort of this, you know, come and take mentality or whatever it is. Americans don't have the discipline to do the most effective measures and yeah. no one's telling them to do it. We, we don't have the discipline to do it. I mean, that's one of the things, that's why I like A&M, right? Cause you'd think that A&M teaches these values of discipline and service and loyalty and, 
You know what I'm saying? But uh, not enough of them. Not, we need more. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it makes me think about how bad it is, how bad an idea it might be to bring 30 to 40,000 people into a small town and force them to be in rooms of 20 plus to uh, receive instruction they could receive online. And then watching the numbers tick up in those areas where Athens, Georgia and College Station did the stupid thing like the Sturgis and bring all these people together in a small location when it wasn't needed. And then you have cases spike. Yeah, it's a lot better than Sturgis. I want to give the AM administration a little bit more credit than the motorcycle organization. <laughs> that seems fair. They weren't wearing any masks or didn't have a... <laughs> so I think we're cleaning. They were cleaning their motorcycles in Sturgis. You know what I mean? There was no wiping things down. So I mean, we're, at least we're trying here. At least uh, that's trying. a really good point. Um, yeah. So I want to move to some of the long-term consequences. You know, we've been yeah. talking about things that are trying to take care of the virus and, and, and do away with it and mitigate the harm in the short term. But you speculate on the paper um, based on the literature of some other longer term trends that, that we might see, see coming. And, and one of these um, I've been thinking some about, which is the technological change and how it changes work and how it changes how we interact with our, our students, how we interact with each other, how even more sub subjugated we are to algorithms. So the technological change one I, I thought was, was quite interesting. So I'd like for you to talk about it some, but the national debt uh, was also one that I had not really thought about as much. So maybe you could talk about it as well. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the, the good news, let's do the more positive one first, which is the technological change. You know, one of the things that um, I said when they interviewed me in one of the Houston TV stations was that this is going to change the way we work forever because we're learning things that, you know, we didn't know. People who do commercial real estate are extremely nervous. Uh, they're really feeling the pinch because now if all these people can work at home, the value of office space is going to plummet. We're finding out which classes we really do need to teach in person and which ones maybe we could do less. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So there, or we have, we're learning that. So there's a whole bunch of learning that's going on that I think is really going to transform uh, American production and the way we work. And I think that that, you know, it's this sort of, um, you know, creative destruction that happens with these crises that we're learning new things or trying new things. And that's going to lead to a big increase in productivity. I really believe that. I mean, imagine if we figured out who could work at home and who doesn't, and we took all those people working at home and eliminated their commute time and added half of the commute time to their work day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> Instead of driving, which you wouldn't get rid of work, now you can actually get something else done. Well, oh, oh, and, <laughs> and per perhaps we can put the children to work too. <laughs> <laughs> for a lot of people it was very frustrating they had their you know blood pressure and traffic and they didn't like it they'd rather you know be okay well no that's not going anywhere with greg so <laughs> well i saw that i'm not gonna remember the details but i do remember seeing a study that had come out that said that had saved the american consumers you know billions or hundreds of millions of dollars um, from just not having their commute, both from the direct cost of the commute and the indirect cost of their time that it saved. 
Yeah, and the shift to eating at home, right? I mean, I know it's not as fun as going out to eat and you have to, you know, generate your own work, your own labor and the meals, but, you know, the, the meals at home are usually cheaper than restaurants and they might, you know, be, so there's a lot of things that we're going to learn. I know. Let's just, no, but let's just, no, let's just all eat gruel, okay? Because that's, that's a lot cheaper than food that he's good, that tastes right. good. And, right. and let's, and let's, and let's just not have any fun. Let's work 12 hour days. And I really think that these child labor laws need to be. I mean, I, these children. I am not advocating child labor. Just because my children work 12 hour days doesn't mean I think anybody else is. It would, it would be newfound efficiencies. Newfound efficiencies. It's true. See, now you're making my case. Now you're making my case. Look, look I every, all of this is true, except for the fact that it also sucks. Yeah, no, I'm, people don't like it, right? People, no, why, why, right. Why, would, why would you want to work from home? There's actually things that you can get done more efficiently in the office than you can right. from home, right? And, and I agree that this will change to some extent the way people work in that maybe you won't come into the office all the time. We've already seen there was a trend in, in that direction anyway, but there are, there are reasons that offices develop. Right. Oh, yeah. And 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 I also don't think I'll push back a bit on the higher education implications. You know, uh, are there courses that you don't have to be in the classroom for? Yeah, sure. But you can do them already online. What, what students lose is not just the classroom experience, but the larger experience of forming a cohort and interacting and the intellectual activities that occur in the hallway and in the in and in, in, in the bar and in all sorts of areas outside the classroom we don't have an accurate measure of how that's going to affect the quality of our education but i got to tell you every first year bush school students student i have talked to and all of them via this machine since orientation i've apologized to yeah. Because the experience that they are having is not the best experience we can give them. And my point, and I and I support you. So I'm being provocative, obviously, for the point of entertaining your audience. But uh, you know, I will say that exactly what you said is exactly what I hope you'd say. Because this experience lays that uh, in stark relief, right? It puts it in very stark relief. Now we're saying before there's always this talk about is online better. Now we can say, look, this yeah. is what they're losing. We, right. we tried that. We tried that. That's the main thing I'm saying is that now we've tried this. We know what works and what doesn't. And we're able to make a much stronger case. Next time when we recover, people are like, oh, we could just go online. You're like, no, this is the five things that we lose when we go online. And we experience that firsthand. And we can look at these students versus those students and see the effects. Do you know what I'm saying? So this yeah. actually gives us that evidence and we're learning from that. That's my main point is the technological change is coming from the learning, even though it's unpleasant and we don't like it, we are learning stuff about what works and what doesn't work and what we like and what we don't like. So right. and that's to, and to Raymond's change. And to Raymond's point, I think, and to Greg's, we, it won't all go away, but we, I think we will settle into a new equilibrium because we, we will have learned some things. Yeah. Some things will be done particularly in the private sector, some things will be done more remote and distributed to just to save costs. And some things to Greg's point at the university, we want our students to have the cohort. We want them to have some time with professors. So we'll, 
we'll find some new balances. But I do like that it's forcing us to experiment because there are some things about technological change as someone who's been studying technology and finds a lot of it fun, um, where people are resistant unnecessarily, right? And so there are some areas where- we, Speak we for yourself it. about the unnecessary. Part. <laughs> <laughs> hey, two generations keep us from agreeing what's necessary and what's unnecessary. <laughs> I'll let you two duke that one out. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the the debt. Yeah, yeah. So it's not a pretty picture. Well, the other thing that you know, to to Greg's point earlier about how maybe we've made some mistakes by rushing into things, there is you know this big push to spend billions of dollars, if not trillions. So the the CARES Act was one point eight trillion dollars, and then the new right was up to $2.3 trillion, depending on kind of how you measure it and what's included. So uh, the total US federal debt is over $26 trillion. So that's more than US GDP. And I'm not talking about just the public debt, there's also the intergovernmental debt, which I am adding in. But nevertheless, right, it's, it's very close, if not more than the US GDP. That actually has tremendous fiscal implications that we have been trying to wrestle with or not have been ignoring or whatever for years and years and years since the 80s, frankly. Uh, but we, I think we do need to take a step back and say, okay, you want to spend $2 trillion? How are you going to pay for that? How are you going to have tax cuts in 2017 and then start increasing spending by 2000, you know, in 2020 without balancing that out, right? I mean, you're going to have to balance that out somehow. Well, but here's the problem. Right, we're, we're, we're Keynesians in economic downturns and we're supply-siders in economic upturns, right? Yeah. And, and this is, and everybody is a hypocrite about this. Yes. Democrats are hypocrites, Republicans yes. are hypocrites. Republicans are more hypocritical than Democrats these days, but there's plenty of hypocrisy to go, go around, yeah. right? I, I actually, I'm, I've been converted to pure Keynesianism we should be borrowing as much money as we need and not looking at what percentage of the GDP, the, our debt, right? We should just, we, the markets will tell us when we should stop. I mean, we can borrow at such a low interest rate that we should do it to get out of this problem. But then we should repeal the damn 2017 tax cut and we should raise taxes on rich people. And, and by rich people, I mean, you know, not just everybody who's above a million dollars a year, but I should pay higher taxes, right? Yeah. Maybe not Justin, because he's poor, but... <laughs> I'm still a lowly associate professor, yeah, not yeah. a department head, or an economics professor. Yeah, so... But, you know, our problem is that we're, we're all, you know, all the Republicans are Keynesians in a downturn. Yeah. But when it comes time, when, when, when we're in economic upturn, like, let's say, the President of the United States says he built the greatest economy in the history of the world. Well, then maybe we should raise taxes on people who yeah. are actually making a lot of money. Yeah. And we did the opposite. And, and it wasn't just yeah. President Trump, President Bush, 43 did that uh, back in, in, in the early uh, 2000s. And it, uh, it, has, it, it has chipped away at our fiscal position. But to me, the time to worry about your fiscal position is not now when you're in this bone crushing recession. The time to worry about your fiscal position is when you've gotten out of it. 
so fair, but I really like the fact that you added on that you know what we need to do when the time comes. And there's no discussion of that. And that's my point, right? Is that there, we need to start thinking about the future and what will we do once we get out of this? I don't, as you know, I think you would agree with me 100%. There's who's gonna raise taxes? The Democrats aren't gonna raise the taxes. The Republicans aren't gonna raise the taxes. No one's gonna raise the taxes to raise, to pay for the, for the debt. And- Bill what? Clinton raised taxes when he was elected in right, 1993. And, and, you know, the, the, the prophets of doom said, oh, this is going to ruin the economy. Turned out it didn't. Right. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, Biden has a tax increase plan that's very concentrated on people who make more money than I do. So you're talking about people in the top 5% of income earners. It, it would be enough to, to get our fiscal house in order. No, but at least it would reverse the, 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 yeah. tre the bad trends in our fiscal position. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, you know, I think that we definitely need to be moving uh, in that direction to think about how we're going to balance it. And Bush and Clinton raised taxes that helped balance the budget in the 2000. And that by 1999, we had a balanced budget, which that was good. That was the right way to go. But well, the, we had, a, we had a balanced budget, but not, we didn't uh, get rid of all the national debt, which would be foolish no. to do. No. Uh, but what we're, we, we shouldn't confuse things, right? There, there, there are government deficits and then the total national debt. Yes. And we're not saying that the government deficit is 100% of GDP, right? What we're saying is, is right. that our total national debt has achieved about 100% of our yearly GDP. It's That's just right. a kind of a standard measure of, of your overall uh, fiscal indebtedness. Yes. And so, anybody running a business, though, would be very wary about carrying these kinds of debts. But governments are not businesses. Well, okay. But the one point I would like to make about the about the revenues, though, is is who 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 are we paying the interest to? Right, we pay the interest to two groups basically: wealthy Americans who have the resources to lend the money, and so the Chinese, and the Chinese. And the Japanese. The Japanese are now number one, but the Chinese are number two. So, so where does the money come from to pay the interest? From, from the money that we borrow? Well, from taxes on everybody else. It's a part of the third largest part of the budget. So we're taking tax money from everybody to pay the wealthiest Americans and the Chinese. It's a direct reverse transfer. So that alone is justification for reducing the debt, in my opinion. I mean... But this kind of austerity talk at a time when unemployment is still over 8%. Well, I'm not saying we take care of this now, but I'm saying we need in the long run is really start thinking about, we need to think about the budget issues in the long run, right? Yeah, and, and, and in the long run, to quote Lord Keynes, we are all dead. And, oh, and, yeah. and the, problem, the yeah. problem is that nobody wants to take the punch bowl away when the party's getting fun. And, but nobody and wants we, to take away the punch bowl at any time. Right. Ever. But we but there's times when you should have the punch bowl out like now and there's times you should take the punch bowl away. Right. And we should we should have take, been taking the punch bowl away in 2016 and 2017 and 2018 as we were coming out of the Great Recession. And instead, we said, drink up, everybody. Right. And not everybody, because we know that those tax cuts were concentrated to the wealthiest Americans. 
Well, I hear most. Let's all remember this. Let's all remember this four years from now or three years from now when we're out of this horrible situation. Our economy is taking off because we do have an incredibly productive economy and 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 incredible entrepreneurs, and our economy is going to recover. But let's remember that and push our our senators and our Congress people to to do the right thing about taxes. I agree a hundred percent. We're on the same page. So we did get one question throughout the, the except, uh, except on that question about child labor that you're. <laughs> We, we don't have an uh, we haven't had an economist on unless we make at least one or two jokes about efficiency in inappropriate places. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's part of it. <laughs> so there was a question earlier on that I missed about uh, about the direct payments and the stimulus checks and and how they uh, what their impact was. But I think we did. I think we did cover cover that. So thanks for that question. Um, thanks, Raymond. Olga. I think. Yeah, thanks, Olga. Um, I think we made our way through your paper. Is there any kind of summarizing comments or things that we haven't, that we didn't touch on that will highlight for the listeners the challenges of managing the economy and managing COVID as we move forward, um, as we move forward? Well, I just want to thank you guys so much for having me on. I hope you'll have me back. This is awesome. I really missed you guys, and uh, I'd like to see you guys more often. I really wish we could see you more often. This was super fun. Yeah. So this is one of the examples of how technological change makes things possible and maybe even efficient, but much less fun. Yeah. 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 I do. More fun. I do miss our uncorked. I was thinking about uh, on a not to end on a sad note, but I was thinking about all the good times with our our dear friend Kent Portney at uh, yeah. uh, downtown uncorked, and uh, he was like Raymond. He was always uh, really gracious with his time, and. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, sad that we all can't get together anymore. So I, it's good to see you guys, and um, we will. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we can be gathering uh, at a wine bar sometime in the spring. Is what I'm yeah. hopeful for. I hope so. I sure hope so too. Um, well, with all that in mind, I have one last bullet uh, point here to share with the audience. If they can see it, we will be recording um, live again. In in two weeks with Christine Blackburn, who um, will give us another kind of the public health perspective on, uh, on COVID-19 and what we're hoping that she'll be able to do as uh, Raymond was able to kind of put the U.S.'s context uh, from an economic standpoint into a broader picture and a little bit about how the U.S. is an outlier. Um, uh, Christy will, um, hoping will tell us a little bit more about the different types of responses how the U.S. has fared in those responses to other countries, other strategies that are being used. So we'll dive in a little bit more to the specific public health strategies that will help us, as Raymond suggests, um, defeat COVID so that the economy can uh, chug back along and we can pull people back out of poverty and and uh, and move back forward rather than the, the madness that we're having to deal with now. Greg, Absolutely. anything you want to you want to leave the audience with? I think uh, Raymond and I, for a change, me and the guest, or the guest and I, did the bulk of the talking. I'm sorry, well, Greg. That's okay. I mean, I I got my two cents in. I, I just want to <laughs> reiterate that, you know, Dr. Blackburn is a, a real specialist on infectious diseases, mm -hmm. uh, both the science of them and and the policy implications of how one deals with them. Uh, She's got her doctorate in, in uh, 
what was it? It's veterinary biology, I think. Uh, that sounds she's, right, yeah. she, but she's worked, I mean, she's worked every end of the issue of infectious diseases. And so yeah, it's always great to hear from her. And an expert on pandemics. She was actually helping look at pandemics with Scowcroft before we hit our once in a century um, pandemic. Exactly. So we're looking forward to having her. We're also, uh, Dean Welsh has agreed to join us this semester and um, we'll be reaching out to some other folks to join us so you don't have to just listen to Greg and I drone on. A little bit of variance. <laughs> Diversity is good. That's what we'll end with. <laughs> Thanks, gentlemen. It's good to see you both. Bye, Thank everybody. You. Thank you.